certainly a significant moment that in my mind just happened. I pray that the Lord has drawn you close and maybe even started to till and cultivate areas of, of our own hearts as we're, we're, we're maybe now positioned because of just the, the role that worship has to, to hear more clearly the, the truth of God's word as it, it sort of penetrates those nooks and crannies of our heart. I'm, I'm sure that many of us come in and got some biblical knowledge and thoughts about what, what the Lord has done and, and even who he is. And yet, as we come to worship every Sunday and even as we study the word throughout the week, what we come to the realization is, although we know significant aspects of God, we don't know everything. There's a, there's a development and a growth. The Bible calls it sanctification, but there's really what it is, is there's a cutting away of things in our life that need to be, uh, transformed, changed, encouraged, grown, all of those aspects. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to reframe a little bit about how we understand both the work of Christ in us and the work of Christ through us. Years ago, uh, when I was a fireman in Vermont, volunteer fireman, you know, it's not often that you get called upon to, to go to significant house fires, but they do happen. And I remember one of the first ones that I, I went to where we were called and there's a, a structure that's on fire. It was this house and the, the fire had started in the garage and it had made its way up into the attic and over into the main part of the house. And we get there and, and the, the term is fully engulfed, which means that it means that the house is on fire is what it means. And so everything, I mean, there's, there's, there's uh, fire coming out the windows and all these things, and we're developing a plan of what we need to do to, to begin to try and put the fire out, right? And so in the process, you know, we'll, we'll go into the house or we'll look for different places, or if it's too fully engulfed, then we called it surround and drown, which is essentially what you do, right? You surround the house with all this apparatus and you just throw tons of water on it. In the process of that, the family had, had made it out, um, and I was, I was on the outside of the structure, and, and right after we put out the fire, we do what they call salvage and overhaul, which means you just start to uh, look for hot spots in the house, and you're pulling out drywall. It's probably the messiest part of the whole thing, and you're just making sure that the fire's not going to reignite with all of those things. And, and the family's walking around after we had finished salvage and overhaul, and what they're doing is they're... They're picking through scraps of their lives that are left behind. There's a file cabinet over on the right side of the home. There's a chair that's partially burnt. There's a few pictures that have burnt edges, but you can still see some of the faces. They were sort of preserved from the fire itself. And the the language, the vocabulary is pretty similar for everyone who's gone through those things and made it out. Here's the, the first thing that they would normally say is, and we made it out by the skin of our teeth. <laughs> We're one of the lucky ones. But then in conjunction with that reality, the second component that comes right on the heels of that is we've lost everything. We've lost everything. Lives will no longer be the same. It's those two things I want to talk about as we understand the reality of Christ in us and through us and reframe our understanding. Because what, as I was working on this sermon, my impression is that we 
hold those two things fairly closely in the thought of our own salvation. And I think it needs to be redeveloped or reframed or shifted in a way where we don't miss the potency of what the truth of the gospel is. That first mindset is we've made it out by the skin of our teeth. We're the lucky ones. The challenge with that perspective is that there's a thought that somehow in some way salvation has something to do with our ability. We made it out. Somehow we saw the circumstances of the world around us and we saw fit to do all of the things and somehow in some way through circumstances and thought and wisdom and all of these components, we made a decision and we made it out by the skin of our teeth. The problem is, is that what it does is it embeds a bit of uh, us in the truth of the gospel message. Here's what I think the Bible really moves us towards. We're the arson. We've lit the match. And we're trapped. We need rescue. Thus, when we think about the gospel message, what we're in essence saying is that the ability to save ourselves does not exist. And yet the God of the universe, the God of heaven, saw fit to move towards us and realize that in the context of of our own lives and the fire that's burning inside and the fact that we're trapped and have no way out has moved to use and marshal the resources that that God has at his disposal to send in those that would rescue the trapped. So how does Jesus do that? Well, obviously, when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news that that God in his infinite wisdom saves sin-sick sinners by sending Jesus to die in our place, that we receive his righteousness, and he takes on our sin. And so we, we have that message, but in the process of those who are trapped in the fiery furnace of their lives, that they're the arson, that we're the arson, that we've lit the match. The question is, is how do they know? How will they understand the truth of that message? And so God sends not only Christ, Jesus as God, the second person of the Trinity, to accomplish all of those things. So that has been done. We have the avenue in which rescue is possible. But now we have those who are messengers to send that message to those who are trapped. Those who are in the midst of needing deep rescue, and each and every one of us have been recipients of God's directive and has sent individuals who are armed with the truth of the gospel message into the mess and furnace of our lives and told us the truth of Christ and the way out. And they are, there are a few that have been obedient to share that truth with us, and thus we represent even here in a small subset of people that we are followers of Christ, those who have been rescued, those who see the shambles of the world and have our hope built on Christ alone. And, and, and it's because there are those who have taken the charge and committed themselves to the reality of what it means to be a follower of Christ that they are obedient to the message of the fact that they've been rescued, so though they are also those who are sending and spreading the gospel message 
to be a part of God rescuing others. It's not about our ability to save our lives by the skin of our teeth. It's a total and complete surrender to the reality of what Christ is doing on our behalf. And obedience to that message is the call. At the end of Jesus' ministry, after his death and burial and resurrection, just before he ascends into heaven, Jared alluded to it and chatted about it last week, and I want to laser focus in on one piece of it to help unpackage the idea, because I think what happens, just to lay my cards out on the table, is that if we are convinced how deeply we've been rescued, how the only source of our hope is Christ alone. It compels us to move towards the mess of other people's lives because we know what we've been saved from. And it's not that we just stand out in the rubble of our lives and be like, whew, we're the lucky ones. What it does is it reframes our vision and our eyes and our lenses of a world that is burning and deeply needs the only hope that we find in Christ. And so we're compelled as saved ones to desire others to be saved ones. We're motivated in every area of our life to see that no matter what circumstance we've been put in, no matter what encounter we have, whether it's a waitress at a restaurant or a teller at a bank or an individual that you cut you off in the middle of driving or someone that you work with or a family member that doesn't know Jesus, if we are so convinced that we've been rescued only by the saving power of Jesus and those who've been obedient to his message, we are compelled and motivated to be those that are a part of seeing others rescued by Christ. It reframes every encounter from our spouse to our children to our neighbors to the world. It captures the motivation of who God has called followers to. This is not the to answer the question of what you're compelled to do. It's the why we're compelled to do what we do. So this is not to say that somehow in some way, uh, and I hope that the Lord does it, compels people to full-time Christian ministry. It's saying right here, right now, You are positioned in the lives of people that don't know Jesus to live a missional lifestyle in such a way that he is moving you and calling me and calling us to places of obedience to share the truth of God's message with those that we know their lives are on fire. They need the truth of the gospel. So Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, runs through what what the Bible is calling the Great Commission. And all I want to do is I want to focus in on one aspect of that. And then I want to look at another passage in the book of Acts to see how this plays out with an individual that is so firmly convinced of the reality of what God has and and Christ and the Holy Spirit has compelled him to do, that this is how life looks in view of those who have been rescued. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, be familiar to many, says this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, when he saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's the the general atmosphere of what's taking place. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority. I need you to circle that if you can, highlight it, or at least just embed it in your heart, because this is incredibly significant. It's what starts the Great Commission. All authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach and it. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Highlighted that section of teaching them to obey or observe all that I've commanded you because I think that there's something in the truth of this great commission that gives us an understanding of the work that Christ is doing in us. How many of you right now, and I'll raise my hand as well, are completely obedient fully to the commands of God? How many of you observe them perfectly? Here's what we get. We get the Great Commission bookended by this declaration that no authority exists outside of Christ's authority himself. From heaven to earth, Christ possesses all authority. That means there's nothing that is able to command or tell Christ to do something. He's the one that possesses the authority. And so in the midst of this commission, he's saying, I have the ability to communicate these things to you because I'm the possessor of all authority. And then he says at the end of this text that I will go with you to the very end of the age. So the authority that Christ possesses is embedded in the followers who deeply love Jesus to move into a world and communicate and proclaim the truth of the gospel because they possess the reality of Christ's work in them through the power of the Holy Spirit and possess the work and the authority that Christ is marshalling across the world. So to call people to repentance, to even desire to move towards obedience is a part of the work of God exercising his authority and work in our life to draw us to himself. And he says, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded. Here's the part that I think is so critical. We are both growers in and givers of the message of the gospel. That means that we aren't those who have fully figured out how to observe the authority that Christ has in our life to do all the things perfectly as he's told us to do them. We are still on a journey growing as the Lord is calling us to find faith and trust in his power and provision in every aspect of life. But that does not limit you or me from being givers of the message. And I think sometimes we cripple ourselves to say, well, I don't know enough. I'm not sure I can answer every question. I'm not sure that I'll be able to communicate the truth of God's word perfectly. And so I'll let someone else. (laughs) And I think what he's saying is that these two things happen simultaneously. We are growers in and givers of the message of Jesus's rescuing power to those who are trapped and set fire to their lives by sin. We lit the match. We know what it's like. It's not as though we can't relate as those who have been entrenched and entrapped by sin in our own devices and our own selfishness and someone being obedient to the call and command of God came into our lives, entered into our mess and communicated the truth of the gospel to us. That's pertinent for me because my story involves growing up in a non-Christian home. I didn't have 
influences of Christianity and what it meant to be a follower of Christ in the context of my early years growing up, someone had to tell me what I didn't know. And I didn't even know my life was on fire at that point. In the process of the declaration of the message and God orchestrating the events because he has all authority in heaven on earth to move things in such a way to send specific people to be a part of the rescuing party that is changing and transforming our lives and calling us to obedience to himself. There are those that are exercising and learning and growing in obedience because God is calling them to himself. And so we are growers and givers of this message. But now we need to figure out what's the why? What does it really look like to live a life that is so convinced that we are not only the rescued, but those who are part of the team to be those who are uh, communicating the message of rescue to others? How does that really practically look in our lives? We're going to jump to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, kind of be in verses 22 through 38. And this is one of my favorite passages. But before we get there, here's where I think we begin to, to compete against that other, uh, maybe debunking that other reality that we think about. So we think about, well, we, we got out by the skin of our teeth, right? And when reality, it was God who has done the rescuing. It's not that we had any work or effort in figuring this out. The Lord is the one that moved and drew us to himself. And so we, we stand there not as just those who are lucky and, and hope that others will be lucky too. We're a part of a, a larger mission where God is sending his people into a world that is on fire and, and showing the, the narrow road to where hope and faith and peace and intimacy look like. The other piece that I think we're debunking uh, is that often I think that we think, well, I, I've lost everything. My, my, my life is irreparably changed, or I'm worried that if I place my faith in Christ, the very things that I love, I'll lose. How do I even frame the thought behind those things? The month of November has been a bit interesting for me. I've been wanting to try and figure out how to get in shape, and, and I know I am a shape, uh, a pear shape, but whatever it is, I'm, I'm a shape, but I want to get in better shape. And so I committed to myself to, to, to run every day of the month of November, and whether it's a mile or a couple miles, just getting out and embedding consistency in my life. It's not been great. It's kind of entering into the pain cave, suffer fest, call it what you will. It hasn't been all that much fun. But uh, about two weeks ago, I was on a run and uh, I was thinking to myself, like, this is hard and, and I'm not enjoying it. But then I started reliving in my own life past achievements. And here's the achievement. You're a dude who used to run marathons. You ran four of them. And now look what your life has come to. I mean, look, look what you've done. Like, you can't, you can barely run two or three miles and you used to run 26. What's happened? And I think for so long in the context of starting running again and moving in that direction, I just thought to myself, well, I've done these things. So that's a part of my story. So I'm a runner. I'm in shape when it's been years since I've run a marathon, but I, I relive 
those past achievements as though somehow in some way it makes me feel better about myself when really I haven't spent all that much time thinking about getting in good cardiovascular shape and I'm just borrowing a history of times where I was more intentional with stewarding my body. I think that moves us into the conversation of Acts chapter 20. Here's what's happened. So Paul is now compelled by God to go back to Jerusalem. And here's what he's convinced of. He's convinced that he's inviting himself to suffer. He's a wanted man. He's sure that abuse and suffering and likely prison awaits him. And in the process of moving back to Jerusalem and sailing in that direction, he has a spark. And that spark is, I need to tell the church at Ephesus one more time, what's most critical. I need them to know and hear me because this is likely the last time that I will ever see them again. I need them to know. So he pulls into the port of Miletus, and in the process of doing so, he pulls the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church aside, and begins to communicate to them the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, certainly he's addressing leadership in the church, and I think that's critical, because I think as the leaders lead the church, the church moves in that direction and follows. So I think what's compelling in this text is how Paul begins to spell out the essence of what it means to to be laser-focused on on who God has called us to be and even how we frame or even reframe life itself and understand what compels us to be that which we are, followers, ambassadors of Christ. So that's the backdrop of Acts chapter 20. Now, let's look at verse, uh, let's look at verse, we'll probably start at verse 22. So, uh, well, I'm going to give you a little bit more. So uh, he moved into Miletus, and he sent, F, um, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church, this is verse 17, to come to him. And, and when they came, he said to them, you yourselves know how I've lived among you the whole time, from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews." How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks the repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts off the whole conversation by saying, before I tell you what the essence of what it looks like to be radically committed to the cause of Christ, here's what I want you to do. Look at my life scrutinize my behavior. Ask yourself in the context of how I've loved you if those things mesh with the truth of what I've communicated to you. Like, it's all out there. Look for yourself that these things are so significant that they frame every aspect of how I live in love every aspect of how I desire to do what the Lord has called me to do, every compulsion and longing and all of those things, peer into my life and evaluate the words that I'm going to say based on the life that I've lived in front of you. Ouch. That's not an easy place for us to move to because you and I look at our lives and we, we see the mess that still exists. 
And so what he's saying is there's a development. Remember, we're growers and givers of the message. There are change that God is doing inside each of us, but there's also a conviction that if we even opened up our lives and said, look, come to my home and put cameras around how I love my family and then listen to the message. I mean, I'd be a hypocrite, right? I mean, there'd be pieces of how I've behaved that I would have to say, that is not in line with the message of Christ. But Paul, in his conviction, says, you know how I've loved you, so the things that I'm going to tell you now are so critical and so essential, and my life and my testimony back up what I'm going to say. So he can't put more of a finer point on this. Verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that the imprisonment and the afflictions await me. But I, look at this, verse 24 is critical. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 24 is critical as Paul begins to understand the entire scope of his life from being a persecutor of the church and complicit on the, the martyrdom of Stephen who stands outside and all I want to do is, is get rid of people who are Christians because they're messing up with how I function as a Pharisee and as a Jew. And then meeting God, meeting Christ on the road to Damascus and life being totally and completely changed. Here's what he says. I count my life as worth nothing that the only thing that value that I have in my life that is most significant is not comfort or security or control or approval of men. What, what frames my entire life is that I may finish the race, that I may do what the Lord has called me to do, that I may testify both to Jews and the, drinks, or the Jews and the Greeks, the repentance toward God and faith in Christ. That, that there is nothing but communicating and testifying to the gospel of grace. So what does that mean? I think what he's telling us is that the gospel costs us ownership of our lives. Let me say that again. I believe that the gospel costs us ownership of our lives. Let's marry this with Matthew 28. All authority has been given to Christ. In the process of those things, part of understanding the gospel message is the reality that the sole proprietor, the owner of our heart and our life is Christ. And maybe that seems scary because we're wondering what he's going to change or how he's going to convict us. But can I just tell you something that I've learned about my own life? I wasn't that good at leading it anyway. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't great at owning my own life and figuring out my... There was selfishness and self-reliance. There was pride. There's issues of all of these things thinking that I can manage outcomes in life itself. And then I look at my life and I think, well, that, I didn't do such a hot job. Like Jesus is so much better 
at directing where he's calling us to go and who he's calling us to be. And so when Paul says, I count my life worth nothing, he's not minimizing where you're at or who you are. What he's doing is he's actually maximizing and amplifying the importance of the role that he's called each of us to in the places that he's called us. There is a missionary that exists in every seat in this auditorium. You have been sent, and I have been sent by God himself to a mission field that might not be, and hopefully one day is for many of us, the far reaches of the world. But you work in a place of employment. You live, I live in a neighborhood. There are those that surround this community and this church that are having their lives on fire. Hurting, lonely, isolated. I was looking at a statistic the other day that absolutely just brought me to tears. I was so, we've been talking for a while about the mental health crisis post-COVID, which I think will be worse than COVID ever was. This loneliness and isolation has just been transformative. And they've been doing statistics and analysis of the impact of isolation and separation from community in the lives of, of, and the demographics of, of people around. And what they found is the uptick in suicidal ideations and concerns about just ending it all, the greatest increase by 50% from what I was told in teenage girls. Teenage girls are bearing a huge brunt and weight of isolation and loneliness and loss. And yet, we have teachers and students as a part of this body that are convinced that there's hope in Christ. Amen? We're aware that the world around us has no solution to the isolation, hopelessness, and depression of the world that surrounds us. The world will never come up with the right answer. But you've been rescued. I've been rescued. I know that simple truth that you are not alone, that you are seen by the God of the universe and that he has all authority to work in your life in such a way and pave a path of redemption and restoration that you never have to feel alone and isolated even when no one else is around you because the God of the universe sees you. He doesn't just see you, he loves you. He doesn't just love you, he's pursuing you. And he's marshalling his church to go and say, hey, look at this. My life is worth nothing. All I want you to know is that Jesus loves you beyond what you can expect and that you are seen and loved and valued more than you can imagine and that there's a God of the universe not only who cares but has resources to draw you into a place of intimacy and hope where you find your life and you see that your life has value because it's been given to you by God himself. That matters. So Paul says, I count my life worth nothing except to be able to share the truth of the gospel. And so what he's saying is what I value most in all that I do is the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. What I value most in everything that I've been given to do, what I value most in every opportunity that I've been given is not to just be successful in business or successful at my job or even a good person. What I value most is to give other people Jesus. And that moves us to a place of significance and understanding of what he's called us to. I don't think many of us have to change the course of our life. 
And I pray that God would do that for many. But I think what it is, is maximizing the position that the Lord has placed us in here and now. So here he, he moves on, and I'd, I'd love to finish with this. But so, verse 24, I do not count my life of any value as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course of the ministry that I've received in the Lord Jesus and testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's what he's communicating. Pay careful attention to yourselves then, and all the flock, again talking to elders, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church of God is a purchased people, and it cost Christ his life. Which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, which you obtain, okay, which, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things and draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things, I have shown that you, uh, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak, remembering the words of our Lord Jesus. Intriguing finals, those words never show up. There was some level of teaching of what Christ has done. And John gives us this indication in John 20, 21, that there are so many things that Jesus taught that couldn't be recorded in a book. And this is likely one of those. But there's a, a rhythm of what God had embedded in the heart of Paul. That there's a, a sense in which there's a, an overarching category in how we view life itself. So Paul, in the conclusion of all of these things that he wanted to protect the church from, the Ephesian church and the elders and get them all prepared for, he gives them this indication. Help the weak because, and here's the teaching them to obey. So if there's anything that I would want the Lord to teach us through this part of the message is realizing how this plays out. Part of the obedience is the Lord has said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let me offer you a suggestion of how that applies. I would suggest that many of us, myself included at times, are stuck because we limit the blessing of giving our lives to others. So prepared to need to receive something from others that the sense in which we disqualify ourselves, well, if this happens or when this happens or if this relationship wasn't so hard, or if my marriage was in a better place, I'd be able to open up my home, or I'd be able to give to other people. And I, I sense that part of the reason why we're not as gospel-focused or missions-focused is because we've, we've lost sight of this reality, that part of the place that the Lord meets us the most is when we give our lives for others. 
We're not trying to maintain an atmosphere or protect our life in some certain way. We're not managing outcomes. We're looking at every opportunity as an opportunity that the Lord and his providence has directed us towards as a way to give of ourselves for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells the elders that this is key. Here's what I want you to know. You got to know who are the We can't live a life separated from the mess of the world and expect that we're going to be prepared and positioned to proclaim the gospel. You are positioned. You are prepared. You have what you need. Faith in Jesus Christ and a growing relationship with him is moving you towards the mess of others every time, all the time. And often, at least in my own life, the goal is to hold on to things because I'm not sure I'm ready to step into that mess. It's too big. Yeah, 100% too big. Thankfully, you're not the one doing anything. You're being faithful to the call of God, and God is doing the work. I'll finish with this. There's a uh, young woman who shared a bit of a story about what the Lord was doing in her life, and it came through the avenue of gardening. She had planted all of these different plants, and there was a, a place where she was outdoors, and she was just watering the tomato plants with a hose. And in the process of watering the tomato plants and the parsley and all of these things, she was struck by the reality of how selective she could be with what she was watering. She said, you know, I could, I could water this plant a little more than others, but I got to be the one that I got to choose where I was watering. Then I looked at another planter where I had this hose that was hooked up. It's called a soaker hose, and it's just got holes everywhere. And all you do is turn on the water, and it waters indiscriminately. No choice being made, just waters indiscriminately. She said, often that's how I view my life, that I see that I have some level of authority to just pour out the grace of God on people that are easier, (laughs) that I like better. It's a water those places that feel uh, more beneficial when the compelling reality of the gospel is that what, what I think God is calling us to is that idea of that soaker hose. In every avenue, in every place, we're pouring out the grace of Jesus in every environment that we can imagine, in our homes, with our families, with our neighbors, in our workplaces, with the waitress that we see at the uh, chilies or wherever you eat. I don't know. Chick-fil-A. Although everybody's Christian there, right? So it's, I guess you're all set, but I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Chick-fil-A is from Jesus, I think. But so, so all I want you to be compelled into this reality is that, that there is a movement for us as followers of Christ that I think many of us, myself included, have missed the blessing of giving because we're still waiting for this. Would you join me in prayer?